Welcome back, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking to Dr. Christopher Yuan, who was once a drug addict and living a promiscuous gay lifestyle. He is now an esteemed scholar at the Moody Bible Institute. That conversation is coming right up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Christopher Yuan, who is one of the foremost experts on the issue of sexuality, speaking from a Christian perspective. And his perspective is very much informed by his life experience. We'll be getting into that on today's show. He's written a couple of books, which he'll be mentioning during the show, and I really urge you to check out. He has a ministry discussing the issue of sexuality from a biblical perspective. He has reached people on five continents with that message, and he is an incredibly powerful speaker, academic, and thinker on issues that are currently transforming our culture and transforming Western civilization. So without further introduction from me, here's my conversation with Dr. Christopher Yuan of the Moody Bible Institute. Well, I guess I'll just uh, I'll jump into this uh, by by asking um, what what's your background? What's your story? You've written several books on that. We'll be getting into some of the details, but just to introduce our listeners to yourself a bit. Yeah, sure. So um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional, I would say, Asian values, which are strong family family values. But we didn't know God. Right. But I wrestled with my sexuality from a really young age. Um, I unfortunately was exposed to pornography when I was nine, which I know oftentimes when I tell parents that that seems shocking to parents. But I think it's out of naivety that we think that nine is uncommon now. Nine, nine is actually very common. When yes, it is. Yeah. Kids today are exposed to pornography younger and younger with um, just, just unlimited access to the internet and that's unsupervised. But anyway, for me that this was back in the seventies. So that, that might've been young then, but that was the first time that I recognized that I had these, uh, these attractions. I didn't come out until in my early twenties and I was, I'm from Chicago and I was going to dental school at that time. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry in, in Louisville, Kentucky. I was going to university of Louisville school, school of dentistry and I came out of the closet, broke the news to my parents, devastated my mom and dad, um, particularly my mom. Even though she wasn't Christian, she, um, she felt like it was uh, – she gave me an ultimatum, choose the family or choose that. Mm. Well, for me, this was not a choice. You know, I, I, I truly believed at that time that this is who I was. Well, I um, – you know, for me, that, so I told my mom, if you can't accept me, I have no other choice to leave. So I left home, left Chicago, went back to Louisville, Kentucky, devastated my parents. And um, my mom even says news of my death would have been better than receiving that type of rejection. Oh, wow. So I, she was actually at the end of her, uh, kind of end of a rope. My parents' marriage was a disaster. They came to the U.S. pursuing the American dream. And I think that they had achieved it, but was still, um, still, you know, just not happy. There was still this void. So they, uh, my mom actually had decided to end her life. But amazingly, God in his sovereign grace um, saved her. And uh, within a few months, my father did as well. Well, I wanted nothing to do with her. What I saw is crazy religion. Uh, wanted, And I just dove right into just in the party scene with my friends in dental school. And, and I don't want to just make it seem like it's the gay community that are partiers. I mean, if you're not a believer in Christ, you're going to you live it up. And, and have fun. I mean, there's only one life and you have to, you know, make the best out of it. So all my dental school friends, they were, you know, when not in dental school, they were out partying and drinking at the bars and clubs. I also was doing that with some of my new gay friends. And so I spent a lot of time in the gay clubs. And, and so I, I really want to reiterate because a lot of times people hear my story and think that I'm saying all gay men are promiscuous, all gay men go to bars or, uh, you know, do drugs. And that's definitely not true. Certainly some are, some do not. But when I tell you my story, I just have to be honest and tell, tell that whole part of it. But I also right. want to remind people that when you encounter Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. And that's, that's the important thing. So I 
began experimenting with drugs, but like my other classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I really needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. Well, eventually, you know, because I thought I could live this double life being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But unfortunately, three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So I moved uh, down further south to Atlanta, um, and I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was sell drugs. And I also became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. And this whole time, my parents didn't know that I was doing drugs. They didn't even know I was selling drugs. But they knew above everything else was not my rebellious behavior. My biggest you know, issue wasn't even being in same-sex relationships. But they knew my biggest problem was that I was not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they just prayed for that miracle. They prayed that, that God would reach down with his mighty arm and save me and that they and I would, you know, receive the gift of conversion. And so I, uh, you know, they, 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 they even came to visit me one time when I was down in Atlanta. I kicked them out. <laughs> and, you know, the interesting thing, Jonathan, was they – they were not preaching at me. Right. They didn't even tell me. And I knew what they believed about sexual morality. They didn't even, they didn't hit me over the head that I was living in sin. But just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me. And I told them to leave, told them to get out. Um, and, you know, and the interesting thing today is we hear the narrative, right, Jonathan? You hear from Hollywood, from the movies, that Christian parents, people who believe in the Bible, are not able to love their gay children. That's what we yeah, hear. That's right. Yeah. And and yet and they and actually they say you have to you know throw away your faith, throw away the Bible, or become you know a progressive Christian. Um, then you can then you can really love your gay children. But I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. They rejected me. They became followers of Christ. And they knew they could do nothing other than to love their gay son. So they, uh, I kicked them out. Before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. And I, I was like, I don't want your Bible. <laughs> you know, I was like, what are you doing? Give me your Bible. I don't want your Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter, walked out. I, I took my dad's Bible and I threw in the trash can. That just, it was just a symbol of how much I detested God, despised Christianity, wanted nothing to do with this book, the Bible. Then my parents, it was so obvious after that visit that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But praise God, my parents didn't focus upon the hopelessness of upon the promises of God. And they enlisted over a hundred prayer wars from their church, from the Bible study fellowship group, and they began to cry out to God for me. My, my mom began to pray a really, really bold prayer for her mom, which was, God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours every morning in her prayer closet reading her Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take a miracle, a total miracle to bring the son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door, open up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I was arrested. I found myself in jail, a place I thought I would never be. Um, I, and I called home. I, you know, honestly, I did not. Well, that was the last person I wanted to call. It was called right. home. Just thinking that I was just going to get this earful for my for my parents. You know, amazingly, my mother's first response when she received that phone call was, are you okay? No condemning words, just words of unconditional love and grace. So a few days after that, I was walking around the cell block. I passed by this garbage can and I'm like, this is my life. You know, I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. And um, my, my parents, you know, my dad has two doctorates. I, I really, I was only three months away from getting my doctorate. So I had, I had a bright future, and now I finally found myself among common criminals. I was about to pass by this garbage can, but I looked down on top of the trash was a Gideon's New Testament. Took it back to my cell, began reading it, and at first, what I was reading, actually, you know, we say the Bible is good news, and it is. 
But initially for me, it wasn't good news. I was reading through the Bible and there were so many things there that it was just convicting me. I'm a sinner. You know, as I, was, I remember reading, as clear as day, it was a, the day before I was sentenced, I read Psalm 51, you know, against you alone, God, have I sinned. And I was like, wow, that's, I, 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 you know, I rebelled against my government by breaking the law. I was rebelling, obviously, against my parents. And now I realize, actually, those pale in comparison to, actually, I was rebelling against the holy God, and I was broken. And I'm thinking, what? This is not good news. Well, things got worse. I was called into the nurse's office, and um, I got the news that I was HIV positive. And I'm thinking, how worse can this get? I was sentenced to six years to life. Uh, I was supposed to get six years to life. Um, ten, I'm sorry, 10 years to life. And I got six years. I'm like, what? I mean, <laughs> everything else, uh, my whole world was caving in on me. And I remember laying in my bed. I was all by myself in my cell that, that day. Looked up at the metal bunk above me. And, you know, Jonathan, in, in prison, they're all metal bunks, <laughs> plastic mattresses, uncomfortable. And I was laying there. I looked up at the metal bunk. And there was graffiti, profanity, you know, just the usual. But I looked up in the other corner and someone had written, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You know what I mean? There could have been any verse written on that bunk. But that was the exact verse that I needed to hear to know that God, who used the words of a, you know, of a prophet, written by a prophet, thousands of years ago to this rebellious nation Israel. I mean, if you read the whole you know, paragraph, it's about this, this nation Israel that was rebelling. They were in exile. And God was saying, I have a plan for you, Israel. And God was telling me he also had a plan for me. I don't know what that meant. I had no clue what that meant, but God just gave me enough faith to just get through that one day and the next. Well, my transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies like drugs. Within a few months, God delivered me from that. God kept bringing my other idols, and there was this huge thing that I felt like I just could not let go of. It was my sexual identity. So I, I, I went to a chaplain, you know, thinking, he's someone who's studied the Bible. He, he should know. So I asked him, well, what do you think about this topic? You know, what do you think about homosexuality? And actually, I was so surprised. He told me, you know, the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he even gave me a book explaining that view. So I'm thinking, man, great. Now I have justification. I have, I'm able to have my cake and eat it too. I mean, don't we all? We, we all, who wants to change? We want, you know, to have our desires, our wants, our plans, and have God too. So I took that book. And I began to read it. I had that book in one hand, the Bible in the other. And you know, Jonathan, from every human perspective, I had everything inside of me wanted to confirm that, that, by, that, that book to justify what, the way I had been living. But I know now, I look back and it's like, it is totally the Holy Spirit, the miracle of conviction that he convicted me that that book, was a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that, that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, looking for justification. You know, I, I, and I wanted to find anything that might bless a monogamous same such way. I went through the whole Bible, cover to cover, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursuing monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, this is important, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Right. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. So my, uh, you know, as the, as the days and the weeks of abstinence passed, I realized first that sexual abstinence is actually possible. And I know that might sound surprising to our listeners now because many might have been raised in a Christian home, uh, raised with a Christian faith, but I was not. And the world kept 
telling me for years, all the years I, I grew up as a teenager, high school, college, that abstinence is just not reasonable. It's not possible. Right. But it actually is. Who knew? <laughs> Second, I learned that abstaining from sex is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a little while, that as a matter of fact, my sexuality does not have to be, actually should not be the core of who I am. You know, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that is so true. But as sinners, we like to add to the truth of God. So I added, therefore, God doesn't want me to change. You know, God loves me unconditionally. So therefore, this is where I add, therefore, God doesn't want me to change. But after reading through the Bible several times, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. This is really important. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. So my identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether they're sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. And we know that to be true. But, you know, in the past, I had for some reason thought that if I were to become a follower of Christ, that I would have to become a heterosexual. And the way that the defines it, the way that Freud defines it is being attracted to the opposite sex, which would mean, you know, I mean, you know, so which means it gave me the impression that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. Right. But I realized that even if I had opposite such attractions, I would still need to resist temptation. I would still need to flee, um, you know, and any sin. So I realized that actually heterosexuality is not the goal. If you think about this, I mean, it's the right direction, but it's too broad. If you think about this, God never says be heterosexual for I'm heterosexual, but neither did he say be homosexual for I am homosexual. Rather, God said be holy for I am holy. So I love to say that the object of uh, homosexuality actually is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. So, you know, I don't need to focus on whether I'm going to be tempted because we all will be tempted. We all will struggle, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. So I began living this life of holiness and purity, and God began to reveal his plan for my life, which was to actually be in full-time vocational ministry. And so I decided while in prison um, to, to, to actually you know, apply to, uh, to, to a Christian school. There's a Bible college here in Chicago, and I applied to that. I applied to that while I was in prison. And my references, people always love me, because my references were a prison chaplain, a prison guard, another prison inmate. To write my references. I went to Moody Bible Institute. And I, I actually miraculously, I think, got accepted. I graduated from Moody. Um, actually, I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month. So just think about the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> so I graduated from Moody, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014. And and I had this blessing of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. And it's really cool. There's an eight-week discussion guide that we found out several Christian high schools are, are actually using as a textbook. Because, Jonathan, as you know, that our youth are being flooded inundated with resources on sexuality, all from this non-biblical worldview. And there are so few resources that we're able to give the youth that they will actually read. This Christian high school teacher said, I have the hardest time telling my students to read their textbooks, but not this one. So we're, they're using it. And then my newest book, which you know we're talking about now, called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, where I introduce this concept of biblical sexuality. Because oftentimes, you know, the message is, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And those are important messages. But we can't stop there because we can't build a Christian life on God's no. So God's yes, and it's more 
precise than just heterosexuality. It's uh, holy sexuality is chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. So this is really, really interesting because your perspective, both articulated in your books and you've just laid it out again, is, is quite different than, than a lot, not just of people out there in the secular world, which we'll get to in a minute, but also of, of certain segments um, inside American Christianity in general. So to give you one example uh, that I know you're aware of, the Revoice Conference, where there's a discussion about um, the idea of gay Christians and, and, and the, the idea was promoted by, by some people that, for example, um, because uh, Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction um, will have a very difficult time dealing with that attraction. Perhaps they could be in monogamous but chaste relationships with other people, that sort of thing. Um, and I know that you have quite strong opinions on that, but because this is a very current discussion and because the culture has forced the churches to grapple with this in, in a very public way, what are your thoughts on, on the message put out by Revoice and, and, and by some in, in, in some Christian communities that say, um, well, this person is a gay Christian and therefore we should be making certain admissions and, and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, as uh, the important thing for all of us to know who follow Christ is um, this deceptiveness of, of false teaching. Uh, false teaching uh, is not going to be convincing if it's not grounded in some form of truth. Look at the example of Jesus Christ, uh, 40 days in the wilderness. How did Satan tempt Jesus? He didn't just give him all lies. I mean, there were lies, but it was not hundred percent lies. As a matter of fact, he came at Jesus with the word of God, with truth. And that's where, you know, false teaching is oftentimes the most deceptive forms of false teaching where it is mostly true. I mean, you can have 90% truth. It's that 10% that is, uh, that's not just off, but can lead you way off and even lead into sin. So let, let me at least start with where there's some agreement and, 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 you know, there's aspects of a reverse where I say, yeah, I, I agree with that. For example, uh, marriage between a man and a woman, they will, uh, they claim that I, I agree with that as well. Marriage is, there's only one definition for a marriage that God has given us in, in the Bible. And that's between a man and a woman. And that's not just grounded somewhere in just even the, uh, the new Testament or somewhere. And, you know, the prophet said this, it's not even, uh, just grounded in the law. If you look at the example of Jesus Christ, he goes way back, even before the Torah was established and, and written, and he goes back to Genesis. So that's really foundational. And people are like, we make such a big deal out of marriage. Well, yes, because God does. The Bible begins with marriage. The Bible ends with the marriage. Revelation 20 of uh, Jesus Christ and the, his bride, the church. Mm. And throughout scripture, there's a lot. So anyway, so that's very important. So that we can agree with. Um, I also agree with there is a sense, even though I think it might be a little overemphasized among Revoice. Yes, there is a sense where the individuals like myself, um, you know, there is a difficulty. It's, it's not easy. But I don't believe that m the difficulty that I have is somehow uh, that much exponentially greater than just the regular believer struggling with sin. The problem isn't that mine is exponentially greater. The problem is I think too many Christians who are struggling with other sins, they're respectable sins. They're mm -hmm. sins that we can kind of overlook, like the young man who's struggling with pornography, looking at women, you know, opposite sex pornography. We justify it, we think it's okay, and they're not as broken as they should be. And I mean, being broken and recognizing our sin is not going to make you happy. <laughs> so there's going to be pain. Uh, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, cut your right hand off if it's causing you to sin. That's not going to be pain. I mean, that, that is going to be painful. That's not going to be fun cutting your right hand off and gouging your eye out. So mortifying sin is always going to be uh, difficult. Uh, so the, the Christian life is not difficult. So there are things that, that at least where I can go. However, the... Um, where, you know, kind of the projection of where they're going is a few things. So, so let, let's just start with terminology, because I think sometimes people say, oh, we're just quibbling about words. Well, right. th there's a difference between just if you say tomato or tomato or, you know, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to make it that simple, but at least um, it's not so much just the words we use, uh, 
It's the definitions that come with it. Words matter. I mean, I, I it, in our world of infinite shades of gray, I, I, I love to, you know, jokingly, as I tell people, we live in a world of infinite sh shades of gray, not just 50 anymore. Yeah. So we're living in this world where everything's ambiguous. You know, we talk in circles. I mean, sometimes you can talk to other people who, you know, say they believe in God. Um, and yet there's this difference of, of beliefs. Uh, even some Muslims, they can be, oh, I believe in God too. So we're kind of maybe even using some similar terminology, but it's, we're, we're, our definitions are different. So this is where it's not just quibbling about little words. We're talking about definitions because words matter. And um, so, for example, the, the term gay. That is, uh, people who use that, they say that I'm a gay Christian they, and, and they believe to the, that marriage between a man and woman. They will argue and say, I'm not saying that I'm in a same-sex relationship, nor am I saying even that I am for gay marriage. So therefore, they realize that term gay could be misunderstood. So they add another word, which is celibate. So they say, I'm a gay celibate Christian. Right. Um, for me, I mean, right off the bat, I would realize if I need to use a modifier to, to, to modify a modifier, that could cause me to, to, to question maybe that first modifier might not be the most ideal, and maybe I need to come up with another one because it's obviously causing confusion, therefore you need to add that, that second modif modifier. But it's deeper than that because it's not just about your behaviors that you need to say, well, I'm a celibate, meaning I'm not into the behavior, but for me, the term gay is so tied to essence, to ontology, to the core of who we are, that that is the main reason. Not about, you know, this term about the behavior part, that's, that's secondary, but the core issue is that for all people who, who use that term, I would say the majority of people, when they use that term, they're not referring to this is what a person feels or what a person does. If you, if, if you have a, a gay acquaintance or a gay friend and you ask them, you know, I know what gay means, but I want to hear you, you, your words of what you mean by when I say gay or when you say gay, you will not hear them. Oh, when I say gay, I mean, this is what I do, right? <laughs> they won't say that. You know, when I say gay, I mean, this is what I feel. These are my attractions. Or when I say gay, I mean, this is what are my type of relationships. No. Today, when a person says, I am gay, they will say, this is not what I do or what I feel, but this is who I am. That, that word who points to that gay is associated with my, the core of my being or even a core part of who I am, or it's, it's an ontological issue. Oftentimes, why well, I use the word identity, and, and the word identity can be misunderstood. That's why I, I clarify, when I say identity, I'm talking about our, it's an ontological category. And because of that, I reject it, because this is not who I am. My struggle with sin is not who I am, it's how I am. So I tell people sexuality is not who you are, and this is important, sexuality is not who you are, it's how you are. But right. then, as you mentioned, Jonathan, you know, about the revoice, which is at basically revoice in spiritual friendship. Um, a lot of sincere people, and I think that uh, they're doing their best to live faithful to God, but think just the concept of this spiritual friendship, which is not from the Bible, but is actually from an 11th century Cistercian monk who wrote, um, you know, this. Uh, 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 he had like a book in Latin, a writing in Latin about spiritual friendships. And this concept of spiritual friendship was about how two men and can covenant together for life because, uh, you know, so that they can live life together. What we don't realize, I mean, first of all, I think that we, we, we need to read and be familiar with church history, which, which is spiritual friendship folks always keep, you know, that's the biggest argument. But what they don't say is, um, uh, you know, church history needs to come under the submission of the word of God. Right. So there's going to be church history out there that's off. And if it's off and if it, there's no scriptural support for it, then I'm, I'm, it's, it's interesting, but I'm not going to, you know, rely on that, which is, I think, the biggest problem with spiritual friendship. They rely too heavily on, uh, on church history and not come under the authority of the word of God. So this concept mm -hmm. of spiritual friendship is what it was under the context of monks. 
uh, you're not a monk, I'm not a monk, uh, you know, we're not, I don't really know of any monks, I, you know, of course there's monasteries out there, but spiritual friendship folks, they're not monks. And um, so that was under the context of that. And I really believe, um, first of all, there's a mistake that the guy who wrote this, his name is Alred of Ravon. Alred has been accused by many times, uh, people, that he was gay. There's actually no evidence for that. And he had a very strong view of, of marriage. I, I don't think, I mean, he was not writing that spiritual, you know, people who have same-sex attractions or you know, are gay. I'm not, I don't use that terminology, but people, other people do. Uh, people who have same-sex attractions, what they need most is a spiritual friendship. Um, I don't, I don't even know. There's no evidence that then he would affirm that because, you know, these are just men who are monks. Right. But the problem where, you know, you might think, well, so what, what's, what's so wrong about having a friend? Well, nothing. But if you are having a covenanted friendship where two friends are covenant, and they actually even like almost have a ceremony. Uh, they really covenant together that for life, uh, but they're not going to have sex. To me, that essentially is friendship trying to replace marriage. Nothing should ever replace marriage. Our friendship should not, they're, they're two distinct categories. Not to say that husband and wife you know, are not friends. Of course they are. But the concept of friendship is not the same thing as marriage. Um, and when an individual like myself uh, enters into this form of exclusive friendship, we are one-on-one -on -one together. And the only difference between that and marriage is that we're not having sex. I find that Highly, highly problematic, uh, not only from the pra practical perspective. Let's just talk from the practical perspective. If I were to, I mean, imagine for yourself, Jonathan, you know, if, if, you, um, if you had someone that, that you love, you know, a, a young lady and, and, um, and you could not, and, and, and you guys were married, uh, and you could not enter into, uh, you lived together, you did everything together, but you couldn't touch her. You couldn't sleep in the same bed with her, but you, I mean, you, you, you love each other. That would be miserable. Like, I don't, I don't see how that would be even fun or enjoyable. That would be torture for me. Um, and I just, I know I'm weak and I just would not be able to live that. So from a practical perspective, right. I don't see that as, as doable, but from a biblical perspective, I think we have narrowed, spiritual friendship and revoice have narrowed the definition of sexual immorality to simply being the act of sex. Jesus Christ spoke very clearly that it is not just the act that is sin. Go to Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he has committed adultery. So therefore, it's not just the act that's wrong, if or if it is the act that's wrong, it's not just the act that's wrong, it's also the desire for it as well, and everything in between. So if two people are together, and even if they are in a romantic relationship, and that's why in my book I, I talk about it, it's not just same-sex sexual desires or acts that are sinful, it's also the romantic ones. Because spiritual friendship, they kind of like to, don't, they don't want to talk about these romantic desires, um, and they say, well, that's too, that's too ambiguous. In our, in our world of, in, you know, ambiguity, we need to be as clear as possible and not be leading people into sin. And I think actually encouraging this kind of form of covenant, covenant to spiritual friendships is not only leading people up for failure, but it's also, you know, throwing this huge pit in front of them and, and saying, you know, hopefully you won't fall into this. And actually, as a matter of fact, I know of multiple, multiple people who have entered into these covenanted friendships. Um, even they have these little communities of three or four gay celibate women and men who room together and live together, do life together, two, three, four years, five years down the road, two of them fall in love and they become what they call side A gay Christians. So anyway, I, I find it uh, problematic. And also I think revoice, they do address the reality of, uh, for example, there's a high, high teen suicide rate among gay teens. Uh, and, and there's, you know, churches, not done a good job necessarily at addressing and, and how do we encourage and minister and help people wrestling with same-sex attractions. So those I get, but oftentimes when I hear uh, the tenor and the tone of, of, of what's coming out of Revoice is it focuses so much on victimhood and little on the hope of Jesus Christ. 
So what to, to what extent does pornography play a role in all of this? Because I think the one thing, um, because pornography is so prevalent now, it's kind of exacerbated every existing sexual sin temptation. It's produced uh, thousands of, of new temptations because it has the capacity to shape our brains and shape our attractions. And so in this, this landscape and this discussion of sexuality and, and the work that you do on the issue of sexuality, what role does pornography play in making all this so much worse, entrenching it, informing it? Um, because I, I find that, that, that the issue of pornography doesn't often get brought up in the context of this discussion on sexuality. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, uh, you know, the pornography is, it played a role in, in my story. And so a lot of times people will ask, you know, do you believe that it was a cause, one of the causes? And the way that I view it, uh, you know, because I, in a, in, in addition to addressing a correction to revoice, I think I also want to address a correction to kind of the past, uh, a way that we have placed trying to find root causes in our past. And I think when we try so hard to do that, we, we then take the focus away from the true root cause, which is our sin nature. So I, so the way, when people ask me that, I say pornography, things in my past, in my childhood are influences, but not the root cause. Because the root cause of sinful behavior, according to scripture, is my sin nature. Because again, I don't want to fall into the whole victim mentality, because I think sometimes both, both sides, you know, whether it's one trying to look for those developmental causes, or the other side trying to say that, you know, I'm gay, this is the way I am, but I'm a victim because of the church. I think we never want to make ourselves or leave ourselves a victim, which of course, you know, there's a sense where we, there's things done to us. We've been sinned against, uh, you know, we can say of all people, Jesus was a victim, but he never views himself as a victim. He's the victor. If anything, we, the Bible never, never gives us the impression that we are victims. It says we will be persecuted, but never does it say because you're persecuted, you're a victim and remain a victim. So this victim status, and that is so against scripture. It says, yes, you will face hard times. Yes, you will be persecuted. However, at the core, the biggest problem is we're sinners. And because of Christ, we are victors. Because of Christ's blood, because of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we can be victorious. And I don't get that message clearly from Revoice. But with this issue of pornography, so what I see it as, um, so I, I don't know, you know, Jonathan, if you remember back in high school days in, in chemistry, if you remember um, the word catalyst, you know, so yeah. when you were kind of, you know, pouring the, you know, whatever, the chemicals together, you pour two reagents, you get a reaction, or, you know, maybe it's a slower reaction. You add a catalyst, and then that, you know, the, the reaction just, it, it, it speeds it up. So I view, uh, and I think this is lined up in scripture, that, that pornography, uh, things in my childhood, those are not causes. It's not the cause of my sin struggle, because it's my sin nature that's the cause. However, these are catalysts. Right. So when one has kind of this, you know, really difficult, not good upbringing without two parents or whatever, or not, you know, parents involved, you know, what you find is those children are going to be more susceptible. And I think this is, you know, all our listeners will agree to this. You know, when you don't have a mother and a father, you know, not to say that a single mother or a single dad can't raise their children well, but boy, it's harder. And that just communicates to us, children need a father and a mother. Right. And uh, this is nothing new. This is, you know, this is what we've always known. Children need a father and mother. And so when you don't have that, that doesn't then make that individual a worse sinner or even a sinner, that just makes that individual more susceptible. For example, because I think sometimes we, we get this, sometimes this impression that the root cause of homosexuality is an absentee father, dominant mother. I don't view those as root causes. I view those as catalysts because the root cause is our sin nature. Because if that w- was a root cause, you know, I, I kind of take maybe, uh, you know, and it was kind of like an anecdotal data when we go to the inner city where, man, I live in the, in, in the Chicago area. So when you go to the inner city, you're going to find most of those kids don't know their father at all. Uh, they're raised just by, by their mom. And if homosexuality, the root cause is absentee father, dominant mother, we should find this higher incidence of homosexuality in right. the inner city. 
and what we don't. But we find a lot of other things, right? We find drug use, drug abuse, um, gang banging, uh, you know, violence, all this, you know, heterosexual promiscuity, also some homosexuality, but I don't think greater than anything else. And that simply tells us what God has always told us along. Children need a father and a mother. And when they don't, then they're just more susceptible to this underlying issue, this core underlying issue of our sin nature. So when you look at at society today, because it's it's really unbelievable how fast things have moved. We're, we're dealing with and talking about things today that we weren't talking about five years ago. Uh, and because people need a mother and a father, but the family has to a large extent been destroyed. I think uh, well, the way Mary Aberstadt put it is we see um, the greatest number of broken families in world history outside of natural disaster or war, which is really exceptional when you think about it. And so people are seeking their identity in something else. So that takes a wide variety of manifestations, of course. Uh, identity politics can be, it can be racial, it can be about your sexuality, it could be about, uh, you know, any number of different groups. What have your observations been uh, regarding identity politics as one of the root causes that the LGBTQ at alphabet soup at this point, um, but like it's becoming such a powerful identifier uh, in a way that seems to be just be part of this patchwork of identity politics. What's your take on that? Oh, you know, it's such a huge part. I, I think if we are going to be followers of Christ who want to impact this world, we must be familiar with the framework um, I, I see identity politics as a worldview now. It's okay. essentially, it's the underlying meta-narrative in which this entire younger generation, they're living. It's everything is about who we are, not defined as God defines it, that we're created in the image of God, Genesis 1. But we, it, so all of this is stemmed from, we're, we're just basically reaping the, the rotten fruit of, walking away from God, this humanist approach to the world. So in the mid-1800s, where, you know, we have kind of the Romantic period, and it was in kind of in response to this over-analytical, you know, framework, and, you know, also coming out of, you know, the medieval period where uh, we were kind of coming back to the sciences and coming back to logic, which was, you know, th those aren't bad things. Uh, but then as they were also rejecting God, and of course, during that time in the 1800s was there was de dealing a lot of just European nations were rejecting church hierarchy and kind of some of the, you know, just the, the not good things that were coming out of that. They were throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So they were kind of rejecting those things, but also throwing God out as well. Well, as we know, when you throw that out, there's this enormous vacuum that needs to be filled with something. So they're trying to fill it with, well, it's human knowledge and, and we can know, you know, we can know everything. And they found it where well, we can. And, and, and also just this knowledge was leading to futility. So romantic period is all about emotions and feelings. Well, guess what? Today, what is it all about? what you feel, what you think, that's everything that, you know, that's the, that's the only determiner of truth and the only determiner of who I am. Because if there is no God, then we're not created in his image. So we don't, we don't have an identity and we have no purpose. Well, as human beings, we all realize, well, I do have an identity. I do need to have a purpose, but if there's no God, then I need to create my own identity and I need to create my own purpose and value. And that's an enormous burden to carry on anyone's shoulder, but that's what we've been carrying for all these you know, few centuries. And we filled that with what? With what I think, what I feel, etc. And then we've even turned the true, you know, some identity markers like race, uh, you know, like sex, into this social construct. And so we're kind of trying to change everything into the subjective thing of what you think and what you feel. Right. So, um, I mean, that's, that's this whole identity politics and um, intersectionality, which at the core, I mean, intersectionality is, you know, like, like I said before, uh, false teaching always has some truth. If, if someone came at you with just lies, no one would believe it. So intersectionality, yes, it begins with the fact that Yes, there's discrimination in the world. We recognize that. And when you have 
different aspects of some a person's experience or a person's identity that can you know be an aspect of discrimination that adds kind of multiple layers to that and right. we recognize that but what we don't affirm as people who have a, a biblical worldview is that these things are the framework in which we would say everything. So, I mean, intersectionality is now a worldview, just, you know, identity politics, it's all one intersectionality, identity politics, where it's not just saying, well, an individual who has these multiple layers. So like, for example, a black woman might experience discrimination different from a, just a black man. Yes, we recognize that. However, what's now being said is because of all these multiple layers, we need to listen to these people. Again, yes. However, that does not mean that we throw everything else out. We don't throw our logic out. We don't throw all other aspects of truth and that the only form of truth is this. And so now, so if we have a lesbian, black, uh, transgender a male to female woman, that person has more truth, according to the world, than a person who's just a black man. And especially, unfortunately for you, Jonathan, being a white male, you have no, none of these layers of discrimination, which means you are not truth at all. You can't speak any truth at all. And so that's the difficulty. And when it comes into this conversation on identity politics as it relates to the gay community, you know, it's taking a a truly experiential aspect, experiential meaning what I feel, my desires, my attractions, what I do, these are all experience. Um, and we're turning that into who we are. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, it's, it's, we have equated race and President Obama did that in his, in his, one of his speeches and he equated civil rights, women's rights and gay rights. Yeah. That was in the second, second inaugural address. Exactly. His inaugural uh, message. And what he was saying, actually, when I heard that, I was like, well, I know that <laughs> that's been that way. Actually for, for president Obama to say that, that means that it's already been going on in culture for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately some of us, it just took people by surprise, but it, it's, it's been that way for so long. So, and, and unfortunately it's also crept in to uh, the church, you know, to, so, and, and people now believe, as, even as Christians, that, that this is who we are. Like someone will even say, well, I'm a straight Christian. No, you're a Christian. <laughs> right. you know, that should never be our modifier. So one of the things that people have a really hard time figuring out is the sort of explosion of the transgender phenomenon. Like, I'm 31 years old, and there is stuff happening now that even five, six years ago would have been considered more or less uh, unthinkable, right? You open up newspapers and you read sentences like her penis or his breasts, and that's sort of normal. And, and this, there seems to have been this pact um, made by most of the media outlets at more or less the same time to all, all use this very definitive shift in language. Um, can you explain why the transgender phenomenon exploded in such a short amount of time and achieved cultural dominance in such a short amount of time? Because although I would argue that the vast majority of people would still um, not sign off on the statement men can get pregnant, the, the, the cultural dominance has absolutely been achieved. If you look at the fact that they've got one half of the politicians, the progressive wing, they've got Hollywood and the entertainment industry, they've got the media. And, and, and the reason you can tell they have this dominance is because when somebody who's part of the, the, the uh, previously mentioned ca cast uh, screws up in some small way, they instantly get terrified. So you saw Chris Cuomo on the uh, LGBTQ town hall when Kamala Harris came out and in order to pander appropriately, she said, uh, my pronouns are, are, are she, her. And Chris Cuomo jokes, yeah, mine too. And then instantly has to do this sort of sweaty, panicked tweet apology because he realizes that you can't make a joke about these things. These are the new sacred things in our society. And, you know, promptly hastened to assure everybody that he was an ally and things like that. And so when you his reaction to me was just another indication of the cultural dominance that this group has achieved in a very small amount of time. So I was wondering if, if, if you had an explanation for how this has all come about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, actually, the, the way I see it is uh, from maybe from our perspective and from many people's uh, perspective, it's a short time. But I see the roots of it back already in the 70s when I grew up in, in grade school. The Basically, what 
why transgenderism has taken, uh, has just blown up is because for the past three, four decades, it has basically, the reason why is because it's, it, the foundation has been laid. And that foundation is the, the philosophy of postmodernism. Postmodernism, uh, you know, one of the main proponents, and, and he would never have said that, that he would be, you know, a father of, but basically Foucault, Michel Foucault, he, uh, he, his ideas play a huge role in my mind of where we are today, particularly, I mean, specific, I mean, beginning with postmodernism, but particularly with our view of sexual identity and gender identity. So Foucault, many people have heard about him. Jordan, Jordan Peterson has kind of made him famous again. <laughs> Infamous, maybe. <laughs> and because, um, you know, I, I, I kind of joke. So I teach at Moody and I teach a theology of sexuality course. And I talk about kind of the unholy trinity uh, when it comes to sexuality. Kind of the three main people that have, you know, shaped our the secular distorted view of sexuality. Freud, Kin uh, Kinsey, and Foucault. <laughs> I mean, their concepts, unfortunately, have have so distorted our understanding, and we don't. And many people don't even know that it's like they say something like, "Oh, that's that's Kinsey," and you know about you know you tell them about you know all these people, and like, "Oh, wow, I didn't realize that." And yeah, we've had Dr. Judith Reisman on the show, and the stuff that she talked about just stuns people. Oh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's there's so much that people don't know, and yet those three have so influenced. Our, our view of sexuality. But Foucault, he was writing a lot. He, his main work was on sexuality. He was a gay man, died of HIV and AIDS. He had a partner. They had an open relationship. Uh, he lived a very promiscuous life. And again, I'm not pegging all gay men that way, but he was one. Uh, but basically what he was saying is um, he, he was moving a little, a little bit away from coming a liberation movement, which is, you know, empowering the uh, marginalized to rise up over their suppressors and the majority people who are dominating over them. That's kind of liberation of view. Uh, and Foucault was taking that view and twisting it. So not so much saying that we need to empower the marginalized and the, and the minorities, but essentially, it was more of a philosophical move, saying that this binary system, uh, this power uh, dynamic between, let's say, uh, male and female, or uh, white and black, or you know, straight and gay, is not uh, is basically is just a social construct. So essentially, it's deconstructing this quote-unquote social construct and saying. There is no male or female. There is no black and white. There is no gay, straight. All of this is a social construct. And because of that, then, you know, that is their way of providing kind of this liberation is through deconstructing these binaries. Well, that's been going on. For, I mean, how long have we heard that there are no absolutes? That's from the postmodern movement. And because there is no absolutes and because he's riding right on the coattails of the Obergefell decision in 2015, because that happened, that then initiated the transgender movement of just acceptance, of just coming in on the coattails of the acceptance of gay marriage. And now it's this foundation is so well laid. You talk to anyone who's gone through public school um, the past 20 years, postmodernism is basically, it's taught in every single class. It's just not named postmodernism. Uh, and so therefore... Right. Transgenderism, you know, that's what it is. And I, I, I tell people that we need to remind ourselves that actually transgenderism, the real issue is not what is male or female. That's not actually the real problem. The real problem that we're dealing with when it comes to transgenderism is how do we determine truth and how do we determine reality? The world says you feel something, you think something that's your truth, and I have zero right to tell you anything different. As a matter of fact, if I do, then that I'm a bigot, according to the world. Right. What does God say? God says, Jeremiah 79, the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Paul says in Romans chapter 12 too, 
uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That means to me that my mind, my heart, unfortunately, has been impacted by the fall, which means that I can't trust my heart. You know, yes, God gave us emotions. Praise God that we're not just robots. Praise God we do have feelings. However, not every feeling that I have, not every desire that I have, not every emotion I have is from God or is good. In the same way, my thoughts, God gave us a mind to think logically, analytically. However, my thoughts are not God's thoughts. So not every one of my thoughts are something that then I can say, oh, I thought something, so therefore it's my truth or it is good. So therefore my thoughts, my emotions have to come under the submission of Christ. And so that's the real issue when it comes to transgenderism. What is true? What is right? And then the world loves to say, I believe in science. Well, fine. What, what happens when two sciences contradict one another? For example, in transgenderism, what we're doing is we are making psychology trump biology. In other words, mm. my mind, my thoughts are most important and my, my body literally does not matter. My body is completely irrelevant and malleable and changeable because it is what I think that rules everything. And that's unfortunately kind of the world that we live in today. So with that uh, rather bleak analysis, if I could ask you to um, to make a, a projection or at least give an idea of where this is going, because there's been a bunch of different opinions as to where our society is heading as it's braced the sort of radical autonomy and postmodernism, as you just described it. And so there was a, quite a, a number of people, and I was initially sympathetic to this view, although I'm not as much anymore, that because uh, transgenderism... Um, creates victims and we are going to discover that those people have been victimized a lot sooner than we had with a lot of the other victims of the sexual revolution. Um, like, so we have kids that are going on puberty blockers. We've got kids that are transitioning at younger and younger ages. We have, if you go into Reddit, there's these enormous threads of detransitioners who are talking about how they've basically been permanently scarred and mutilated. Uh, and nobody cares about them anymore. Nobody knows what to do with them. The trans movement, the LGBT movement just wants them to shut up. So these people are kind of destroyed and broken. And I initially thought, well, maybe, um, if, if, if people start to see the obvious truth that transgenderism is harming so many people, maybe that will bring people around. I now think it's more likely that, that, that the Christian community is just going to get blamed um, for, for uh, that our transphobia is somehow responsible for the suicide rate because those people never would have had doubts if, if we weren't expressing our points of view and things like that. Um, even if Christians are, are, are a very small minority, as they are in, in a country like Canada, uh, we can still be blamed for somehow having imposed our views into public school systems where we're not welcome. Uh, and so I wonder what you think this is going to look like over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, does this head for an enormous smash up and people start to recognize uh, a sort of nature strikes back situation? Or does instead the very pain that will be experienced by LGBTQ individuals, will that also be used against Christian communities? Well, Christians have been blamed for from the beginning of time, I mean, I mean, from several 2,000 years ago, I mean, when, you know, Rome burnt down, who, who were blamed? Christians. <laughs> so, you know, I, and I love to, uh, I wish I was more of an idealist. My dad is an idealist, and uh, he always looks on the bright side. Right. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't like to be this way, <laughs> but I, I tend to be a bit more of a pessimist. Actually, I like to call myself a realist. But um, I hope for the best. I, I would love, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you that, uh, that, and, you know, we are hearing more and more stories, unfortunately, of, of people. And we're going to hear more and more stories of kids who are, like you say, on these, you know, you know hormone blockers that are going to turn out to be, uh, they can't have children. They're going to, you know, not, not be able to. So it's, it's going to be permanent, permanent damage. We're going to hear more of these stories, but I, being maybe more of a realist, I do feel that, like you say, we're going to be blamed again. Uh, someone has to be the poor whooping boy. And, and even now, um, I just get, I get so much stuff from emails and uh, social media where it's no longer, Jonathan, that I am or you are, that we are hateful. I get that. I mean, right. I'm hateful, whatever. But it's gone to the next level. We're, we're just not hateful, but we're actually killing people. 
our words, our perspective, our view of biblical sexuality. You know, I love to say this is not, not my view. This is just God's view mm-hmm. of, of holding to God's view of sexuality is not just hateful. It's actually causing the suicides of gay teens and also trans teens. I've been accused of that on Twitter quite regularly. Oh, yes, of course, all the time. And and it's and, and it's well, boy erased. Perfect example. There was a boy that took his life, and um, and so and and it, you know I didn't watch the movie, and I bet it was done from a you know cinema you know from a film perspective, it was done very well. The acting was probably good, but it was again who it was the poor whooping. We the church Christians were the poor whooping boy distorted. No, you know there's no camps like that anymore. Uh, there's no, and even there's their methods, I think were, were, were incorrect, um, in, you know, forcing people, I, you know, I, I, I never went to any of those camps. I, I heard some things that I was like, you know, I don't think that that's the right approach. Um, but even through all of that, when we hear today, uh, state states making these laws, I'm, even though I'm not a fan of, of that form of therapy, it is, it is just tyranny to have state governments tell professionals what to do. And um, so I think it's, it's absolutely, and I'm not approaching this from a Christian perspective or a religious perspective. It's just democracy where, you know, unless we are communist China, which honestly I've been to China and, and we are more communist today than, than communist. Well, okay. Not, not including now these past few years with Xi Jinping, that's a different story. But when I was there in the past two, you know, five years ago, communist China was less communist than, than I feel the U S is unfortunately. And the U S projection of where we're heading, uh, where, the government is is telling everyone what to do because they think they know what's better. I mean, how in the world can a congressperson, woman or man, know more about psychology than what? And even this is the funny thing about psychology is now we have made um, anecdotal evidence equivalent to true objective data. What do I mean by that? What you hear today is, you know, uh, you know. Reparative therapy is causing children uh, to kill themselves, and they're pointing to this research where that's not what the research is saying. It's cause, saying that parental rejection is well, mm-hmm. rejecting a child is not equivalent to holding to the biblical perspective. No, I know no. parents who hold to the biblical perspective, and they 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 reach out to their kid. Actually, it's it's one way. The parents keep reaching out, and the children are not responding. Um, so it's, it's, it's very clear. And, and, and this is important too, that, that people need to look at this one research in the Netherlands, which is done several years ago, Netherlands, which is the most gay affirming country that we know of in the whole world. They were the first country in the world to legalize same sex marriage. So you would think in such a gay affirming progressive quote unquote country that the t- teen suicides would be lower. It's not. Gay teen suicides are not lower in the Netherlands. It, they're ju- they're, they are higher, gay teens, compared to teens that do not identify as gay, that suicides are higher. So it's, it's to say that stigma is causing uh, um, you know, suicides isn't true. But anyway, I, I, I think, unfortunately, that we will become more of a, of, of a minority. I think there's going to be a purifying of the church that those who are kind of just cultural or they think it's comfortable or this is what is always done, um, as we come to see, well, what do you really believe? Do you really believe that, that God is God? Do you really believe that God is the, the only one, that, that Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life? Not a truth, not a form of truth, that he is the truth. If you, if you don't believe in that, um, then you know, you're going to call Christians to be bigoted. So I, I unfortunately think that, that we will in the next five, 10 years, I also think there's going to be this redefinition of the term evangelical. We don't really know what that means anymore. Right. Uh, who are gay affirming now say they're evangelical too. So, so what does that mean? Um, I, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm a pessimist. However, <laughs> like you said, you know, such a bleak view, I do, do still see hope for the true church, for those who do believe that, that God is able 
that do believe that the gospel is a beautiful message, that actually biblical sexuality is a wonderful, good thing, chastity and singleness, faithfulness and marriage. And, um, but, but I do think that there will be a refining of, of the church. Well, final question, where can our uh, viewers and our listeners find your work? Well, I have a website. Uh, it's my full name, Christopher Yuan. That's spelled Y-U-A-N. That's actually uh, the same. Uh, people say, you know, that's the Chinese dollar. So you can call me money. Uh, ChristopherYuan.com. And then my two books uh, can be found on Amazon or really any, any, pretty much any website that, that sells books or, you know, usually bookstores. You can order them there at Barnes & Noble, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's the two books, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So that's Out of a Far Country. That's the one that I wrote with my mom. That's our testimony. And then the newest book, which came out about a, a year ago, called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Design, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. And those can be found, yeah, on Amazon and online. Well, Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jonathan. God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Dr. Christopher Yuan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to check out any past shows, head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab. That's where you can find my past shows. Uh, shows get uploaded every single week, and I also write commentary on LifeSiteNews.com. I'm one of several who write opinion columns. Uh, They've got a full team of journalists writing the news, so if you want to check out any of that, head over to LifeSightNews.com. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.